What is it we worship? Is it God? Or is it ideas, concepts, and man's interpretation of God? Welcome to episode 35 of What We Believe and Why with pastor, author, and teacher, Dr. George Byron Koch. Now, it may seem like a fine line between worshiping God and worshiping ideas about God, but if you peel back the history of how we came to have some of these ideas or concepts, we find a good deal of human input that has to be taken into consideration. And upon understanding the human input, we also begin to understand some of the conflict associated with religion over the ages. It's a fascinating discussion. Let's get to it. Here's George. So we're facing this problem in the church today and over the centuries of idolatry of concepts after we have analyzed Scripture and derived ideas from that analysis. We've fabricated ideas from that analysis, and then we've put those ideas together into theologies and doctrines and rituals and methods of worship, and we've idolized those rather than worship the God of Israel, the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit. But the problem continues and grows within the church. The church, as it became embedded in the Roman Empire, this happened at the time of Constantine, the early 4th century, the church followed the organizational model of Rome, whose education was led by Greek teachers over many centuries. Even Rome's military, like all subsequent military forces right up to today, studied the methods and principles of Alexander the Great, the pupil of Aristotle. The church grew large within the Roman Empire while it was nurtured and trained in this environment. More, the church was steeped in things Greek even from its first moment because the culture of the Middle East had already been Greek for more than three centuries. As the church matured, this influence of Greek philosophical methods of thinking, analyzing, categorizing, and describing, it only deepened. In the centuries after Jesus, it changed the church from a Greek-influenced Jewish movement in and about Judea to a largely Greek culture religious institution throughout the Mediterranean with a Roman governmental structure and Roman norms of authority and hierarchy. The philosopher and mathematician Alfred North Whitehead once wryly observed that European philosophy, quote, consists of a series of footnotes to Plato, close quote. And although some modern philosophers might draw the lines from early Greek philosophy straight to the Renaissance and the Enlightenment, Greece clearly also provided the foundational thought forms, the ways of thinking for the church from its inception, and later quite explicitly for Thomas Aquinas, who seems to have learned of Aristotle from Islamic scholars— and continuing right through all of the systematic theologians who followed him right up to this day. But again, 
Long before Aquinas rediscovered the Greeks and their methods of reasoning, their ways of doing philosophy, their ways of fabricating philosophical structures, Greek philosophy was already the foundation of the Christian church's religious concepts. It was the DNA of the church, though the church seemed unaware of it, or unaware that it had been so thoroughly infiltrated and overtaken. Now, this is not a new revelation or a big secret. It is the analytical and creative thought process by which Christian religious concepts and their subsequent doctrines, dogma, creeds, rituals, liturgy, worship practices, polities, canons, and even hermeneutics were formulated. This is not to deny the work of the Holy Spirit in any of this. But as we will see shortly, the products of the process take on a life of their own. It is worth noting that the early Christian religious concepts were not readily accepted as equals to the work of ages of Greek philosophical schools. Critics in the Roman and Greek cultures in the first two centuries found the Christian church's philosophical efforts inept and even dangerous, and ridiculed them, beginning at least as early as Paul, recorded in Acts 17 and elsewhere. The church's development of detailed and extensive philosophical concepts arose in part in response to the ongoing and condescending criticism it received from its critics, and in part as various Christian religious concepts arose and conflicted with each other. The works of Origen, who wrote against Celsus and On First Principles, the works of Justin Martyr, who wrote First Apology, the works of Irenaeus, who wrote Against Heresies, and Tertullian, who wrote Apologeticus, are examples of just such responses to Greek philosophical criticism. Attack and defense occurred on both sides of the debate and over the course of centuries. Now, I'm aware of the debates over the Hellenization of the church. These stretch back to Hippolytus, Tertullian, Luther, Schleiermacher, Barth, and others. And of the rejection of this Hellenization of the church by the modern Roman Catholic Church, which views it as a Protestant problem. But if anything, this is just another proof of my assertion that this whole process of analysis, extraction, abstraction, and fabrication of concepts produces a framework of beliefs that divides the church. Further, these concepts have more in common with scientific hypotheses than they do with settled truth. Yet over time, they are treated as if they've arrived fully revealed from the pen of the Almighty. The reason it is sometimes called a Protestant problem is because Scripture is held in high esteem by many Protestants. For example, sola scriptura, Scripture alone is the authority. And church tradition is held to be non-essential by the Protestants, or at least less essential. Roman Catholics 
and some Protestants, including Anglicans and Lutherans, on the other hand, hold church tradition very high along with reason. But what is so highly esteemed in this theological trinity of scripture, tradition, and reason is also its weakness. The way in which Greek philosophy provided the framework of tradition and reason led to concepts that were fundamentally analyses, not laws in the scientific sense. They may have been well thought through, but they were not proofs, and they were not revelations from God. And though the Holy Spirit is invoked in looking back at the process, his presence is not so self-evident as the proponents of one view, one doctrine, or another might claim. These concepts may have seemed important and valuable in the growth of the church, but they were elevated beyond their function and station. And the Greek origin of the process, a process of thought by people, was largely considered of no great matter. But it was key to this entire development and to all of the idolatry which followed. It gets even more problematic. One important product of Christian religious concepts is doctrine. Essentially, a set of ideas and themes drawn from a concept and woven together to assert a specific philosophical tenet, idea, that generally was often not explicitly present in the scriptural text, but was imputed from it by linking several verses and ideas found here and there. Many of these have been examined in the previous chapters that you've heard. Some are fairly straightforward and provoke little controversy, while others continue to be hotly contested. Some of these doctrines are labeled heresies, usually because they tended to divide the church into factions, or because they contained elements that appeared to misrepresent God or contradicted the dominant doctrines of the period. There's an old saying, history is written by the victors. This helps in understanding why we believe what we believe today in the church, at least in terms of doctrine. The problem really begins to reveal itself, to unveil itself here. Once a doctrine gains sufficient prominence, it tends to draw not just advocates, but worshipers. Instead of worshiping God alone, we worship doctrines about God, and we promote and defend them passionately. They are easier to understand and control than a being who is holy, holy other, omnipotent, and omniscient. Even if I believe God loves me and desires loving relationship with me, his power and otherness frighten me as they should. Doctrine doesn't scare me. As with wealth, fame, success, and possessions, I want to hold on to my doctrine and defend it. And like wealth, fame, success, and possessions, I can and do make an idol of it. Well, there's a statement that has a bit of girth to it. Our thinking about God can lead to idolatry. 
We'll spend more time on this challenging concept after a quick break. <laughs> 